A number of years ago, uh, I, when I was a pastor in Washington, I served with an organization called Support Officers. And support officers would be called out by the dispatchers uh, along with the first responders when there was a fatality on, on the scene. And the role of the support officer was to be with the family and the friends of the person who had just died so that the first responders could take care of what they needed to take care of with regard to the body. There was one night when I was called out to the home of a woman who had been found by her adult uh, daughter and her ex-husband uh, because they were checking in on her because they hadn't seen her or heard from her in a while. And by the time I got there, they were uh, remarkably composed and um, it, was, it was obvious she had died naturally and so there wasn't uh, much for anyone to do other than wait for the coroner. And so while we were waiting for the medical examiner actually um, with the, uh, the woman sitting right there in the chair just a few feet away, uh, I spent just a few hours talking to this daughter and, and the ex-husband. And I don't remember how we got on the subject, but the husband was telling me that uh, when he was in college at the local u- university, he volunteered at the Suicide Prevention Center, which was uh, located there on the campus. And one night he was, uh, he took a call and there was a, a young man who uh, was considering taking his life. And so uh, this man was just trying desperately uh, as a really uh, fellow young man to prevent this, this young person from taking their life. And tragically, while he was talking to him, he heard a gunshot, not only through the phone, but also through the wall. And he heard, he realized that the man was in the dorm room across the street. And he said that this was, that was the last time that he would serve in that call center because he realized, I don't have any hope to offer anyone. That man did not have, nor did he know, the Christian hope. A few years later, now just in uh, 2020, I was in a Zoom call with an organization that was doing training for suicide prevention And even though I've had that training from a biblical perspective, I was particularly curious to see how an unbeliever would think through those issues. And during the call, there was a particular slide where the um, instructor who herself had lost her father to suicide uh, had a number of practical tips that you could utilize in caring for someone. And one of those tips was to make sure that you give hope to the person who is considering taking their life. So I was very eager to see, what is she going to say? Well, to my disappointment, when she got to that point, she read that bullet point on the slide and went on to the next slide. And right as I was about to say, "Uh, can you go back and say something about that? She herself went back and she said, I always like to ask people, do you have something, a favorite saying you like to use to try and give somebody hope? And she left it open for the nine participants to to say something. You can imagine I was a little eager to say something, but I thought, well, I'm curious what other people have to say. After an extended awkward silence, I spoke up. Now, they knew I was a pastor. We had introduced ourselves. And what I said in that moment was some of the things we're going to talk about today. But that instructor and those folks had no concept of the Christian hope. Now, our text today has nothing to do with suicide, but it has everything to do with what ought to motivate our life every single day. What is it that despite the trials that we might be going through or despite the sins that we might be struggling with, what is it that keeps us going every single day? Well, this text, Titus 2, verse 13, gives us the hope that every Christian has that should drive their life. Now, let's, for the sake of context, read verses 11 to 14. And again, note that verse 13 will be our text for today. The Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, as we've studied Paul's letter to Titus, we've noted that this sentence is is really the heart of the letter. It is both literally in terms of its placement and thematically the center of everything that Paul wants to communicate to Titus. This is essentially Paul's brief to Titus conveying his orders for what the the mission of Titus as he serves there on the island of of Crete should involve. And it is on the basis of this particular sentence that spans from verse 11 to 14 that Titus is to exhort and speak and reprove uh, the Christians there on the island. And I would say this, I don't know of any other passage in the New Testament that more comprehensively explains Christianity. If you want to understand Christianity as the Bible defines it, in terms of its central message and what should characterize its followers, you can do no better than study this sentence right here. And so you can understand why we've been taking our time working through it. In December, you recall, we looked at verse 11 and the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the grace of God came into the world to save sinners. In January, we looked at verse 12 that defines the Christian life as that which is increasing rejection of sinful living and increasing conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. And today in verse 13, we're going to see that what motivates the Christian is the blessed hope that Christ is coming back. And when Christ comes back, we will see and experience His glory. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 14 at the Christian purpose, what we should be accomplishing as we live the Christian life in anticipation of the Christian hope. And we'll see next week that the Christian purpose is to live in this world as a zealous ambassador of Jesus Christ, demonstrating to the world what it means to belong to Christ through our good deeds. But for our focus today is verse 13, the Christian hope. I know some of the battles that some of you are facing. Some of you are facing battles uh, in your own soul as you're wrestling with the flesh, with temptation, with suffering. Some of you are facing battles with others as you interact with family or other relationships. But I don't know what pressures are in the life of every single one of you. But I do know this, you need hope, and I need hope. Whether you have anxieties in your soul that that no one else knows about, whether your body is racked with pain that just won't go away, whether your relationships or your family is on the verge or it's already broken, or you're sitting here today after losing the battle with sin and temptation again this week, wherever you're at, you need hope. And if you're sitting today and life is just peachy, uh, the sun is shining in your heart and you have a cool breeze of peace flowing through your, your soul and you're just walking on cloud nine day in and day out, you need hope too. Because if you're honest with yourself, you know that that's not going to last very long. We all need hope. Now, verse 13 is a small text, as you can see, but it's a mountain filled with gold, and we want to mine as much as we can in this short period of time. So to do that, we're going to go down two shafts, if you will, uh, to draw the gold from each one. In the first shaft, we're going to draw out the need for hope. That'll be our first point, the need for hope. And then from the second shafts, we're going to draw out the object of hope. The object of hope. And when we're done today, my prayer is that you will be filled with hope. The hope that you need, not just to sustain you through a a momentary difficulty, maybe just something you're dealing with today, but that it will sustain you throughout the rest of your life as you understand the hope that we have as followers of Christ. But before we begin, let's pray because I need it. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I am so painfully aware 
of the limitations of uh, my own ability to proclaim your word as much as it ought to be proclaimed. And when we think about the coming glory of Christ as the hope of the Christian, there is so much more that must be said than what we have time for today. And Lord, we all need your spirit to instruct us, to open our eyes to the glorious realities that are embedded in your word. It's beyond my ability to convince anyone, even myself, of these truths. But if we were to have your spirit open our eyes, we would be overjoyed and we would be sustained throughout our entire life, whether that's five days from now or 80 years from now. We could live our whole life on the hope contained in this verse. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would move, that you would speak to each heart, and that you would give us the hope that we need. Amen. Shaft number one, the need for hope. The need for hope. As you look at this text, you can see the very first word there is looking. Looking. The ESV, I think, probably more accurately translates it waiting. But there are different kinds of waiting, aren't there? There's the waiting that happens when you uh, send in your tax return by mail and you're waiting for the tax return to come back. You know it's going to happen eventually, but it's better to just forget about it because it's going to happen whenever it happens, right? There's that kind of waiting. And then there's a kind of waiting when you're sitting in the car and your wife is in the grocery store just to pick up a few items. <laughs> and she's been gone for about as long as you think it would have taken you to get those items, all of about 30 seconds. And now you're waiting, but you're constantly looking at the door. When is she coming? Is she coming yet? Why isn't she here yet? Now, in all honesty, if we're honest with ourselves, men, it would have taken us 10 times as long because we'd have to traverse the whole store 20 times just to find those five things. But that kind of waiting with anticipation is the kind that Paul is talking about here. But take note that the word looking or waiting is a participle. And you can usually tell a participle when it has the ing at the end. A participle is not the main verb in a sentence. It's a supporting verb. And so in order to understand what, what Paul is, uh, is uh, getting at here, we have to understand what is he supporting? What is he trying to explain about how we should be going about doing something else? And specifically what Paul is saying here, we should be looking or waiting as we live our life. Now look back at verse 11 and 12 again, just to refresh your memory. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope. In other words, the grace of God saves us and it instructs us to deny ungodliness, but rather to live righteously and sensibly and godly. And how should we go about denying ungodliness? How should we go about living righteously and godly? We go about living that way, waiting and looking. We must fight against sin and pursue godliness by looking to the blessed hope. Looking for the blessed hope is the way to sustain a life of godliness. In the wisdom of God, he knew exactly what we needed. And he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Imagine for a moment what life would be like if verse 13 and all the other verses in the Bible like it weren't there. Imagine if God had laid before us his standard of righteousness and called us to, to live in light of the salvation that he's accomplished in our lives through Christ. Now, it would be possible to, to look back constantly at the cross. And there is significant motivation and power that comes to us when we, motiv when we look back at the cross and the love of Christ and the example of Christ. We've been talking about that a lot in the Gospel for Life class. But without hope, we would not be able to put our life in its proper 
context. Lacking the, the full context of our life, our perception of our struggle would overshadow everything else because we wouldn't have a way of seeing beyond our struggle. That's the very definition of hopelessness. Not being able to see beyond your present suffering. You know well, as well as I do that when you're in a storm, you can't see to the other side. It's often been illustrated like this. It's as if your suffering, your trial, your difficulty is a sheet of paper in front of your eyes. It's all you can see when it's close. You can't see anything else. You can hardly see the light that's coming around you. As far as you know, that sheet of paper is going to be there the rest of your life. And even if it isn't, you don't know what's on the other side of that. And it's true that looking back at the cross provides great strength and encouragement and comfort and help to motivate your life forward. But as soon as you look ahead, you can't see what's on the other side in front of you. Looking back is is helpful, and I would say it's essential, and we have to do that. But the moment you look ahead, you have to be able to see your suffering in the right context, or else you will be discouraged. Temptations would seem insurmountable and inevitable. The pleasures of this world become compelling and powerful. Anger and bitterness become justified. Depression seems rational. Anxiety is the only right response. We might say something like, I'm so glad that that God saved me and he forgave me and he loves me, but I can't see any path ahead that isn't clothed in darkness. But as soon as that paper begins to be pulled back, you can see what's around it and you can see what's beyond it. Light enters your eyes and you see that there are things outside of that darkness. There is life outside of the pain and the sorrow and the sin. And the further that paper gets, it's not that the suffering changes, but the context and the perception does. Now think about this. In first, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul uses the phrase momentary and light affliction. Momentary and light affliction. That phrase he uses to refer to suffering that Earlier in that chapter, he describes with words like crushed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying around the dying of Jesus in the body, having death work in him. These were not petty trials that Paul was going through. Paul's Christian life and his ministry were defined by chronic suffering of all kind. He had, he had financial difficulties as he sometimes didn't have the support that he Uh, would have liked to have. He had physical difficulties where he had sickness and weaknesses in the body. He had spiritual difficulties as the evil one was constantly seeking to, to tear him down. He had relational difficulties, not only with unbelievers, but even with fellow workers in the gospel. He had all kinds of trials throughout his life as a minister of the gospel. So how is it possible for Paul to refer to all of that as momentary, light, affliction. Well, here's what he said in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our inner man is decaying, excuse me, our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not to the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul was able to endure suffering. He was able to see his suffering as momentary and light, not by minimizing his circumstances, but by putting it in the context of greater realities. It's in keeping with what he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, where he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we suffer in this life is real. It's true. It's painful. It's difficult. But Paul says it cannot even be compared to the expansive glory that we will experience in eternity. It's the context that that changes our perception. 
without the knowledge of what the future holds, those who have been saved by Christ, we will feel crushed under the weight of the sufferings of this present time. But with our minds set on what is coming to us, what is in store for us, we can be strengthened to bear up under the weight of our trials. And so in the wisdom of God, he's given us a glimpse of the future. He's given us a vision for what we can hope for, what we can long for, what we can expect. And that's what we see in shaft number two, the the object of hope. Look again at verse 13. Paul says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Put simply, our hope is in the coming glory of God. We ought to be waiting with anticipation at the appear- for the appearance of the glory of God. Notice how Paul first describes this hope. He, he uses the word blessed there in verse 13. It's a blessed hope. It's, it's a happy hope. This is a hope that ought to fill you with joy. If a believer is seeing the future clearly, they will be excited about it. But we do know that it is possible to look at the future, to hear what I'm saying right now, and not have all that much excitement. To not see it as blessed. It's possible to say, I can't wait for Christ to come back. But I sure hope I get my dream job first. I can't wait for Christ to come back. But I hope I can get married first. With that kind of attitude, there's almost a fear of the coming of Christ. I might miss out on something in this life if Christ comes too soon. Friends, that's crazy talk. I remember when I was in junior high, I don't know if any other junior hires in the room have thought this way. But I thought, yeah, I can't wait for Christ to come back, but I hope I get married first. That thought ran through my mind. Now, you can excuse that as immaturity, and certainly it was, but it's actually far worse. If we are anticipating the coming glory of God, and yet we anticipate something even more, that's idolatry. Longing for anything less than Christ is saying that Christ is great, but there's something even greater. It's saying Jesus is not the most glorious reality in the universe. It's putting Jesus on the same shelf as every other cursed thing in this universe. And when you put Jesus on the same shelf, he always ends up below. And so if that attitude is found in any one of us, may we repent And ask God to forgive us for longing for anything more than him. And ask him to help us see the glory more clearly. Our blessed hope is the coming glory of God. Now the Holy Spirit is always intentional with how he inspires the authors of scripture to write what he intends them to write. There are no accidental or haphazard sayings. There's no uh, words that could be replaced at six Uh, Six here or six there, half a dozen here, half a dozen there. It would be very appropriate for Paul to simply say that we have to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He could say that. Indeed, he he did say that. Uh, He said in 1 Timothy 6.14, I charge you to keep the commandments without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He makes an immediate and direct reference to the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. And the angels, as uh, the disciples were looking up to Christ as he ascended, they too said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just as just in the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. So multiple times, and there are other passages where it's a direct reference to the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. But here in Titus 2.13, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't refer directly to Jesus. Instead, he says that our hope is in the appearing of the glory 
of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Why? What is the significance of referring to the coming glory instead of the coming of Christ? Well, I think it's helpful to make some observations of the text that will lead us down a path of insight. Notice that in verse 13, you see the word appearing. And also notice that we saw that very same word in verse 11, appeared. Just like in the English, there's the same Greek word that underlies those terms in both places. So the word appearing is used twice. Also, note that in verse 11, Paul says, it is the grace of God that has appeared. But in verse 13, he says, we're looking for the glory of God. So please set in your mind that the grace of God and the glory are really nicknames for Jesus in this text. That is significant. Now, I know this church. I know what kind of people we have in this church. And I know that uh, you probably remember and could even maybe recite every sermon you've heard from this pulpit, uh, especially the ones as early as December. But I think it would be helpful if we walk down a trail that we did in December to really look at the connections that Paul must have had in his mind that would cause him to use the grace of God and the glory of God as both references for Jesus Christ. When we studied verse 11 in December, we considered the significance of the word appearing, epipheno, uh, which refers to something uh, coming in, into uh, our experience. And we learned that Paul used that term to convey the idea that even though the grace of God had shone down from heaven uh, throughout all history, even as back as, as far as Adam and Eve, when Christ came, the grace of God appeared. There was an epiphany of that grace. He came into this world and the grace which was localized in heaven and expressed on earth was now localized in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle, Paul John, uh, the Apostle John wrote in John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The word realized means came into being. And John meant that the, for the first time in history, the grace of God became a physical reality at the conception and the birth of Jesus Christ. The grace of God was not only a description of how God treated his people, the grace of God was now embodied in a person, Jesus Christ, who is God. And it's significant that John used that description about the realization of grace and truth. Those are two terms that are used as summary labels for God's self-description that we read in Exodus chapter 34. You recall in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. And God effectively says to him, you can't handle my glory, but let me give you what you can handle. Let me tell you who I am. And so the Lord puts his glory on display for Moses to see. And he declares his character saying, the Lord, the Lord God, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That is God's self-declaration of this is my glory, this is who I am. And throughout the Old Testament, that description of God is repeated about eight or nine times and often in a, in a summary fashion. And the most condensed version of that description is found in Psalm 108 verse 4, which says, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. So the psalmist there summarizes the character of God as his loving kindness and his truth. The Apostle John runs with that and refers to the glory of God as being defined by grace and truth. Now I already read verse 17, but here's verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. So there John connects. Not just is Jesus is not just grace and truth, but that is the reflection of His glory. So Jesus was the glory of God on this earth in the sense that He manifested God's grace and God's truth. He put it on display for all to see. But there was one aspect of God's self-revelation in Exodus 34 that Jesus did not put on display in terms of his own personal expression of it, namely the justice of God. Again, the Lord said there in Exodus 34 that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Jesus said in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then in John 12, Jesus said again, I did not come to to judge the world, but to save the world. So at his first coming, Jesus put the glory of God on display specifically by manifesting his grace in bringing salvation to all men. And that grace comes down to us today. And it's available to you today if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. You can experience the grace of God today. Though you are a sinner and deserving of punishment, the grace of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for sinners. Jesus died on that cross, though he was perfectly righteous. And God poured out his wrath on his son to pay the penalty for those who would believe. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving to all that that he is the son of God and that the father accepted his sacrifice and that you can be forgiven of your sin. And so Jesus is now in heaven, alive, declaring to all men everywhere, repent and believe and you can be forgiven. The first time he appeared, Jesus displayed the glory of God by being the grace of God on this earth. But friends, when Paul says here in verse 13 that we are looking for the glory of God, he means that when Jesus appears again, he will put the full, unmitigated glory of God on display, both his grace and his justice. Those who have trusted in Christ will continue to experience his grace as they are transformed into the glory of his body, as we read in Philippians chapter 3. But what will, be, what will be new, what we're looking for, is the justice of God finally to be poured out on this earth, which will bring sin and suffering to an end. More than that, the justice of God will not only be exerted toward unbelievers who receive the due penalty for their sin, but it will also be exerted toward believers who in the justice of God will receive rewards for the deeds they have done in the body, whether good or evil. I want us to dig a little deeper here and look at a number of passages together and consider how the coming glory of God, and in particular His justice, ought to motivate our lives today. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Earlier in the chapter, Peter wrote that mockers will come following after their own lusts. People will live according to the lust of the flesh and they will do so in a mocking way, thinking that the the justice of God is not going to come. What they don't realize, Peter writes, is that the reason the justice of God hasn't yet come is because God is patient. Because he doesn't want you to perish. So don't live according to the flesh repent, come to Christ. But the logic of sin is that judgment isn't coming so I can indulge in my lust for people and stuff and money and reputation. And I can try to experience all the pleasure I can here and now and nothing bad is ever going to happen. But then Peter helps us understand that the judgment is coming and it should motivate us toward godliness. Follow along as I read 
verses 10 to 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed in, with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, mint, will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Notice again verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Everything on the earth is going to perish. That new car that you have or want so much, it's not just going to get a scratch. It's going to melt into floating atoms. That big house that you desire, it's going to burn to ashes. That relationship that you have, it's going to come to an end. The experience of pleasure that you enjoy so much, it's going to be over. And what's going to replace it is the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The new earth is the place where all of those who love God and all of those who love the things that God loves dwell. So what kind of person should you be now? What kind of things should you pursue now? Are you going to spend your life pursuing the things that are ultimately going to be burned up and after which you'll have nothing left? Or will you strive after the things that will last for eternity? Are you going to live worshiping the things of this earth and perish along with them? Or are you going to live worshiping God and live with him forever? Or turn over just a page or two to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 15, John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. If you're living ungodly, if you're living for worldly desires, when the glory of God appears, you will perish with all of the things you've been living for. But if you're living sensibly and righteously and godly, you will live and enjoy him forever when he comes and he will reward you for the way in which you've lived for his glory. Look down to chapter three, verses one to three. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are for this reason. The world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because he will, we will see him just as he is. Now, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If our hope is fixed on the coming glory of God and on the reality that when he appears, we will be changed and we'll become like him, the natural response to that hope is that you will purify yourself. You will live godly. You will flee from sin. Why is that the natural response? Because if you truly love Christ, if you're truly longing for his return, you're going to love the things that he loves. You're going to want to imitate him. If the love of Christ has enraptured your soul, you will want to honor him. If the fact that he is your father compels you and controls you, you'll want to please him. Now, there are many passages where the coming glory of God and his justice are, are a motivation for life and godliness. But let me give you just one more for today. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, we have both a positive reminder of our glorification as a motivation for godliness 
and a negative reminder of the coming wrath of God as a deterrent to sin. Look at Colossians 3 verses 1 to 6. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Look, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So on the one hand, you've died and you've now been risen with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ. And one day you will be revealed to be who you really are. That is a man or a woman in Christ. So keep your eyes fixed and focused on that reality of who you are and live consistent with it. On the other hand, the wrath of God is coming for the very purposes of ju- for the very purpose of judging immorality and passion, impurity, evil desire and greed, all of which are idolatry. If you've lived your life as an unbeliever, pursuing those things, knowing that the wrath of God is coming, and yet God has rescued you and he's put you in a position where you are now in Christ, why would you keep living for the very things that earned you eternal wrath and the very things that God will judge in this world? Don't live for the temporal things which God is coming to judge. Focus on the realities that will last forever. Well, coming back to Titus 2, the way that we deny ungodliness and worldly desires and the way that we live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age is to be looking, to be anticipating, to be expecting the coming of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That needs to be on our mind if we're going to be successfully battling sin. And that also has to be on our mind if we're going to be successfully enduring sin suffering. The coming glory of God not only motivates us to live a godly life, it also comforts us and helps us endure suffering. Some of you may be in a position right now where you're not really needing a motivation to live godly. You're, you're, you're aiming to do that already and you don't, you don't need more motivation to do that. You're pursuing Christ All you're simply trying to do is make it through the day. Your your focus is trying to live through the loss you've experienced or the trouble that you have in your home or at work or the physical suffering that won't go away. You're not really thinking about the rewards of eternal glory. You're just trying to make it to tomorrow. Well, in addition to motivating the pursuit of godliness, again, the coming glory of God brings comfort. I would remind you of 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul gives words of comfort to those who are grieving the loss of those who've died in Christ. He comforts them by reminding them of the coming glory of Christ. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When we grieve, it seems like time slows down and our grief will last forever. But it won't. The day will come when Christ will appear and we will be reunited with those who have died in Christ before us. But the good news is we won't pick up where we left off because they are glorified and we will be glorified, our love for one another and our fellowship together will be exceedingly beyond what we can imagine. And even better, 
we'll be together with Christ. We'll be in the presence of the Lord, serving Him and worshiping Him forever and ever. And so while we grieve, we grieve in the hope of knowing that one day we will be reunited in glory. The coming glory of God comforts us in our grief, but it also comforts us when we endure suffering for Christ. In 1 Peter 4.12, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of the glory, excuse me, of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. When we suffer for the sake of Christ and he comes back, we will rejoice in an exultant way because we will have suffered for him and now we're seeing him face to face. One final way I want to mention that coming glory gives us comfort is knowing that the wicked will finally be judged. In Psalm 73, the author expresses his confusion at the prosperity of the wicked in contrast to his own suffering when he's been trying to live righteously. He's like, God, they're living wickedly and they're being blessed and I'm living righteously and I'm suffering. How do I put this together? This doesn't make sense. In fact, this is unjust. And so he's tempted to give up on the Lord. But then he writes, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. As it says in Psalm 1, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Believers all around the world and throughout history have suffered in extreme ways at the hands of godless men. Christians have endured torture and death in the most cruel of ways. That was true in the first century. That's true today. And that will be true until Christ comes back. In fact, the agony is so deep that already those who are in heaven are crying out, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who suffer at the hands of evildoers can be comforted by the knowledge that one day the Lord will have his revenge. When the glory of God comes, all, evil, all evildoers will experience the vengeance of God and no one will escape. So let all oppressors be warned. You might think you're getting away with your oppression, but the Lord will come and avenge his saints. Well, do you see it? Do you see how the coming glory of God is our blessed hope? How it motivates us, how it encourages us, how it strengthens us, how it empowers and comforts us. Don't let the trials and the temptations of this life consume your vision. Fix your hope on the coming glory of God and you will be able to overcome temptation and endure suffering. Well, as you look at the end of verse 13, you've noticed already that it describes Jesus as our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Many have tried to find justification here to say that great God refers to the Father and Savior refers to Jesus, but the grammatical structure is unambiguous. It is one of a number of passages that explicitly teach that Jesus is God. And we'll have more to say about that next week. I want to close by having you turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where much of what we've said has been wrapped together. The context here is a defense of the resurrection of Christ and as well our resurrection because of the resurrection of Christ. It's The focus is not on the on the coming glory of God, but the motivation and the comfort that is contained here is the same. Just in closing, let's read verses 50 to 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will, then will come about the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. As I pray, the men will come to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we... We do long for that day when you will return. We, we cannot imagine with any degree of fullness of what it will be like. All we know is to be under the curse of sin and to be free from that is incomprehensible to us, but we long for it. And yet at the same time, we confess that we don't long for it as much as we ought. That we do see the things of this life as more precious and beautiful and desirable and we do sometimes hope that your coming will be delayed so that we can enjoy this life just a little bit more. Lord, forgive us for not seeing the truth clearly and cultivate us in us a desire to see Christ, see him with our eyes, to be reunited with the lover of our soul, to see his glory and his beauty and his majesty to relish in the scars on his hands and on his side and his feet and to know that he has saved us and redeemed us and to be that we can now be transformed into his likeness Lord give us a vision for the future help us to fix our hope on Christ and on nothing else in his name I pray amen